It's May 1985. U.S. and Soviet diplomats are working through the night to arrange a meeting between President Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev, who has just become the leader of the Soviet Communist Party. After decades of Cold War, the future looks like it might be a little lighter. Wham! has just become the first Western band to perform in China. In the US, the opening line of the number one song in the charts is Hey, 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 hey! With Simple Minds, Don't You Forget About Me propelled to number one when it's featured in a hit movie about that most profound of subjects, some school kids in detention. Posters for the Goonies are everywhere, too. Norway wins Eurovision with a band called Bobby Socks. Sidney Sheldon and Daniel Steele sit atop the New York Times bestseller list. On May 16th, Michael Jordan is named NBA Rookie of the Year, and three British scientists publish a paper announcing they've discovered a hole in the sky over Antarctica. Back to the good old days. The accelerating rate of man's progress. For this is the age of industrial chemistry. As we have progressed as a people, we have taken liberally of our Earth's resources. Scientists have discovered a trend. Each spring, over Antarctica, a hole in the ozone develops. Do you think these chlorofluorocarbons are causing this depletion? They said, oh, it has to be wrong. It has to be wrong. We are passing on extremely grave problems for our children when the time to solve the problems, if they can be solved at all, is now. No falling apples, no eureka moments. That's how the man who discovered the ozone hole explains what he did. It was a slow, painstaking process of data collection. But like most great discoveries, this one also happened by accident. Not that people who worked on it didn't know what they were doing, but simply for the fact that they never expected to discover what they in fact uncovered. This chapter begins in 1977. A recent Cambridge University graduate, who first wanted to be an astronomer, then a teacher, was mulling over his future when he saw an ad for a job. The British Antarctic Survey was looking for somebody with a background in physics, interested in the weather, and able to program in Fortran, a computer programming language used in scientific research. Jonathan Shanklin thought he ticked all the boxes, so he applied. He didn't get the job, but once the person who got it turned it down, the job was Shanklin's. Shanklin liked the job, which mostly included weather observation and data intake. One of his responsibilities was measuring and validating solar radiation data coming from the survey's team in the Antarctic. Even though he spent his days working on analyzing the weather in the polar region, he was based in Oxford, England. That would change soon enough, though. Disagreements about some of the measurements arose between the UK-based team and the Antarctic crew. Next thing he knew, Shanklin was being sent to the coldest continent to clear things up. He still remembers his first trip to Halley Station, a research facility in Antarctica, operated by the British Antarctic Survey. So I left England in just before Christmas in 1981. I had um, Christmas in the Falkland Islands and then the voyage south, uh, seeing my first icebergs, 
seeing a lot of the wildlife, the, the albatrosses following the ship, um, and then reaching Halley Station. At Halley, the temperature never gets above freezing. The water is always frozen. On most trips down there, you might see one or two penguins, a few birds flying over, and that's it. There's, there's no other life there. But get back onto the ship on the ocean, and then you'll see seals, you'll see whales, you'll see all the seabirds, and it's really incredibly different. Uh, and then sailing down the Antarctic Peninsula on board the ship, seeing the glaciers tumbling down to the coast, going out in a small boat, and in a, a calm day, hearing the snap, crackle, pop as uh, glacier ice rocks around in the water, and those snap, crackle, pops are air bursting out of the ice that's been trapped perhaps for thousands of years in the glacier. Before leaving for Antarctica, he noticed something in the data that didn't make any sense. The level of ozone in the atmosphere above the Antarctic was dropping. The, the people in the Antarctic were saying uh, the readings are falling off the graph that we're using. And at that time, they were using a, a graph to look up values rather than a computer program, because this was the very early days of computers in scientific use at any rate. Shanklin was an avid reader of scientific journals, so he had heard of theories that the ozone was being damaged by Concord exhaust gases and chemical compounds, chlorofluorocarbons, better known as CFCs. But there had never been any research to suggest that the damage to the layer would happen in the world's southernmost region. He and two colleagues, Joe Farmer and Brian Gardner, started to work out whether the ozone layer was changing. Why were scientists so interested in the ozone to begin with? After all, ozone is just a trace gas in the atmosphere, accounting for only three molecules out of each 10 million molecules of air. In fact, it's crucial for life on Earth. Ozone's simple molecules, made of only three atoms of oxygen, make up the ozone layer, which is located between 15 and 35 kilometers above the planet's surface. This layer protects the Earth from the sun's harmful radiation. Even though we need some of this radiation, too much of it can damage living things. The ozone layer absorbs 98% of the dangerous ultraviolet radiation from the sun, basically serving as the planet's sunscreen and making life on Earth possible. The British Antarctic Survey has been measuring ozone levels since 1957. Their scientists were hoping to track long-term trends but they assumed it would be tough to spot any major changes within just a couple of decades. Unfortunately, they were wrong. And so I thought, well, I'll analyze this year's data as that I was working backwards in time. And I'll compare that with what my boss had done 10 years previously. And the values will be the same. And people don't need to worry about using Concord or spray cans or anything like that, which were thought to be going to damage the ozone layer. And the trouble was, when I graphed things up, they weren't the same in the Antarctic spring. Joe Farmer and the boss said, oh, don't worry about it this year. Um, very often depends entirely how uh, the winter starts to, to transpire in the Antarctic. Next year, it'll be back to normal. Well, it wasn't back to ne normal the next year. And then I worked back through the, the, the missing data and was able to demonstrate that it was a systematic change. 
that by and large, each Antarctic spring, we were seeing ozone levels that were lower than the previous one. Some ozone depletion during the Southern Hemisphere spring, which occurs between October and December, could be expected due to specific meteorological and chemical conditions that exist in Antarctica and nowhere else, such as very low winter temperatures. But the numbers were showing a significant difference. What Shanklin discovered was that the October levels of ozone had dropped by about 50% in less than a decade. Something was very wrong. And it wasn't really until I plotted everything out on a single piece of graph paper and drew a straight line through everything that there was something convincing there. And I, I guess once I had that graph, then it really was, um, at least to me, convincing. But there was still the possibility that I'd done my programming wrong. And it took Joe Farman and Brian Gardner six months or more to really believe there was something there. The three researchers wrote the paper and submitted their findings to Nature, the British scientific journal, the same publication in which the discovery of the neutron, the structure of DNA, and the birth of Dolly the sheep were first published. As with any scientific paper, the article had to go through a peer review before publication. One of the people who was asked to review the paper was a young American atmospheric chemist named Susan Solomon. It was quite a shocker. Um... This paper arrived on my desk for review, and uh, if it was right, it was obviously one of the most important things to ever come along. Interestingly enough, I was very young at the time. I was only, um, I was 29, so I was four years past my PhD. I looked at it carefully, decided I couldn't see anything wrong with it. I thought they had done a very nice job of comparing the two stations, several sets of data that they had. But um, it's interesting how, you know, the more experienced people in the field were, were stunned that this paper even got published. They said, oh, it has to be wrong. It has to be wrong. And I always use that as an example to tell students that you can't, you know, one of the most dangerous things about knowledge is you think you know the answer and you need to stay open to change. The published paper, which was entitled Large losses of total ozone in Antarctica reveal seasonal chlorine oxides-nitrogen oxides interaction probably wouldn't capture the general public's attention, but the scientific community was taking notice. The main question scientists had was why the global satellites hadn't noticed this level of ozone depletion. NASA scientists went back years checking their satellite data to see if there was any evidence of the whole there was a lot of data to go over as the satellites had been sending over 200,000 data points per day, but scientists noticed a pattern. Their computers were programmed back in the 70s when it was thought that ozone values as low as those being reported in the Antarctic in 1985 would never occur. To put it simply, the computers were dropping these low ozone values because they assumed there must have been a mistake, which meant that low ozone levels were never even registered. But danger to the ozone wasn't something new for people in 1985. Throughout the 1970s, scientists were warning the public of chemicals that were destroying the ozone, then mostly found in spray cans. At that time, we had a great saying, get on the stick to save the ozone layer, meaning 
stop using spray underarm deodorant, you know, use the stick, which by the way is is very practical because it actually you get more days out of a stick than you do out of a can anyway. Ozone depletion even found its way into popular culture. In 1977, Warner Brothers released Day of the Animals, a horror movie about animals gone wild because of the depletion of the Earth's ozone layer. Although the effect on living organisms is not yet known, people are being advised to remain indoors whenever possible, especially those in high-altitude areas where the sun's rays would be naturally stronger. Dog, I told you that sun seemed damn peculiar today. Day of the Animals was screened on the BBC just days after Nature published the British ozone findings. So even though the dangers of ozone loss were known in the previous decade, nobody was expecting any major changes anytime soon. On the contrary, scientists expected the ozone layer would thin by just 5 to 10% over the next 100 years. That was a theory. It was far in the future and nothing had been observed yet. We had no observational evidence of ozone loss happening yet. And we thought it was going to be a century in the future. It was the way people used to talk about climate change. And then we had the Antarctic ozone hole, which was astonishing. So it made it into a hot crisis. And it showed that we already had a 50% depletion in a place where no one ever expected it. By the time of the next polar spring, the Americans were sending four teams of scientists to figure out what was happening in Antarctica and why it was happening there. So this was something that had, you know, obviously tremendous importance and we needed to get down there now. Ultimately, I was asked by the National Science Foundation who runs the American program in the Antarctic to write a proposal because they had to have some kind of just process wise, they had to have a written proposal to describe what the problem was, what we were planning to do, because it's quite expensive to just, you know, to send people to Antarctica, house them, provide all the logistics support, a building to take measurements and all that stuff. I mean, and then they asked me to lead, NSF asked me to be the, uh, I think they called it head project scientist. And so off we went, 16 people, one woman who happened to be the leader <laughs> in uh, 1986 in August of 1986. Solomon arrived in Antarctica in late winter and immediately got to work. Our particular research group did visible spectroscopy. So we collected uh, light from the sun, the moon, or the sky using mirrors, basically. Yeah, we had to stand out on the roof in minus 40 with the wind blowing and, uh, you know, I mean, we just didn't have time to develop a remote control mirror system. You know, we only had a couple of months to get ready and we decided that there was no point in risking that. It would be easier and probably more accurate to be able to see what was going on and hold the mirror because you have to shine it down from the roof through a tube into the instrument. Some days it was so cold that Solomon's eyes would close up when tears froze her eyelids together. She couldn't wear protective goggles because they stopped her seeing her instrument clearly. Solomon explains how the instrument worked. The way I like to explain it to people is it's like, you know, if you think about what happens when you shine white light through a crystal, you get a little rainbow, you separate out the colors. It's the same basic principle, but of course, you know, 
much more detailed to look at different uh, colors of light, different wavelengths of light. Certain molecules absorb some colors better than other colors. And so you're analyzing that differential signature as a function of color to tell what's in there. Um, so um, that's what we did. <laughs> and it was glorious. It was like, you know, you felt like a real Antarctic explorer doing this kind of um, very simple and yet effective measurement. The first measurements Solomon and her team took in late August showed high levels of ozone. Just three weeks later, ozone levels dropped to below 200 Dobson units, which is a measure used to track atmospheric ozone. Up until 1979, values of less than 220 had never been found. So now it was clear that ozone levels were too low. But scientists still had to answer the question, why? It was 1973 when two scientists at the University of California, Mario Molina and Sherwood Rowland, discovered that released chlorofluorocarbons, CFCs, could destroy atmospheric ozone. Listen closely, because CFCs play a major role in our story. Molina and Sherwood's theory was that ultraviolet light can break apart CFC molecules, releasing chlorine atoms, which react easily with ozone molecules. When a chlorine atom encounters an ozone molecule, it takes one of the oxygen atoms away, leaving oxygen, O2, and chlorine monoxide, ClO. Chlorine monoxide then reacts with another ozone molecule, converting it to two oxygen molecules, and in doing so, frees the chlorine to do more damage. But these gases, used in refrigerants, aerosol sprays, and the making of plastic foams, were not being released above the Antarctic. So why was it happening in the Antarctic? Solomon's theory was that polar stratospheric clouds were to blame. She thought that the reaction Molina and Sherwood talked about could be happening on the clouds' icy surfaces once sunlight arrived with the springtime. That would also explain why there was no depletion in the Arctic, which is much warmer. Between measuring the sunlight and moonlight on the roof of their research station, Solomon and the other scientists in her team had to join press conferences remotely to update the public on their findings. Everyone wanted to know what was happening at the South Pole. The world was watching. I mean, it was science in a fishbowl. First of all, one of the things that you don't feel comfortable with as a scientist very much is talking about your research before you've actually had it peer-reviewed. But we had to. I mean, given the circumstances, there was no way we weren't going to have to say something. But, you know, peer review happened pretty quickly. And within about, I think my paper was published six months after. I, I'd have to go back and look. But so now at this point, it was pretty clear. You know, you had visible spectroscopy of CLO, from, of OCLO from the ground. You had microwave spectroscopy of CLO from the ground. You had um, the laser fluorescence method by the Harvard group on the airplane. You know, three different ways of measuring chlorine monoxide, and they all told the same story, that the chlorine in the Antarctic was, was greatly, greatly elevated and was approximately what you needed to create an ozone hole. And just like that, the world had all the information it needed. We knew why it was happening. We knew what was to blame. 
and what we had to do to fix it. But what were we going to do about that? Did we have enough time to get something done? But before we talk about how the governments and public around the world reacted to the news of the ozone hole, we'll go back in time to investigate how it all began, to a time before chlorofluorocarbons were even invented, to the dawn of the automobile age. Great things have been done, but much more remains to be accomplished. Some young man, perhaps one watching this very picture, may develop a startling new formula from a test tube experiment, may give the world finer things to use, to wear, to better man's health. In this new world of industrial chemistry, the horizon is unlimited. Unexplored potentialities beckon. Hidden secrets of nature sound a call to this young man, the industrial chemist, the pioneer of tomorrow. Thomas Midgley Jr. was born in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania in 1889. His father was an early inventor in the automobile industry who developed removable tire rims. His grandfather patented many devices used in woodworking and metalworking machinery, but it would be Midgley Jr. who would become the family's most famous inventor. By the end of his life, he would be granted more than 100 patents and become known as the man who almost destroyed the world. What follows is the story of how Midgley inadvertently caused the ozone hole. Pretty soon after Midgley graduated from Cornell University in New York, he started working in the burgeoning automobile industry, like father, like son. In 1911, the year he graduated, there were barely more than 600,000 cars in the U.S., but that was also the year when Charles Kettering patented the electric engine starter, replacing the dangerous hand crank that was used to start early automobiles. Two years later, Ford started production on its famous assembly line, and by the end of the decade, there were already more than 8 million cars in the U.S. By then, the Roaring Twenties were in full swing. The decade marked a break with tradition of all sorts as modern technology reached large parts of the population in the U.S. and across parts of Europe. Women rejected the restraints of the Victorian era and won the right to vote in many countries. Nations saw rapid industrial and economic growth. The first modern celebrities appeared. In France, the decade became known as the crazy years, les années folles, and in Germany as the golden twenties. It was the age of motion pictures, radio, jazz, dancing, and most importantly, automobiles. The accelerating rate of men's progress in all fields of endeavor has paralleled closely our progress in the freedom of movement from place to place. New things to do and new ways to do them. Telephone, electric lights, automobiles, aircraft, all are symbols of better living. New places to go and new means of getting there. 
The car became the center of middle and working class life. It was a source of freedom and travel, completely reinventing the way most people lived. But the cars of the early 20s had an issue that was yet to be fixed. Engine knocking. This referred to the tendency of cars of the era to make a loud, explosive sound inside the engine. Some blamed Kettering's self-starters, but he suspected there was something wrong with the fuel. At that time, Midgley was working under Kettering at General Motors, who gave him the task of studying this problem. Very quickly, Midgley proved he was up to the job. An extract from a corporate film made a few years later explains how Midgley fixed the problem. Did you ever see a knock knocking? Well, I did. What caused the knock? That's what everybody wanted to know prior to 1922. Some said it was a mechanical knock, and then suspicion fell upon the fuel. So they built a quartz window in a test engine, and these detectives of research watched a gasoline villain at work, and they got the evidence. Gasoline was burning unevenly and compressing and heating the unburned portion of the charge until it suddenly exploded, producing an audible banging noise. Some chemical was needed to control the burning of the fuel. And finally, it was discovered that a rare compound of lead, mixed in proper proportions with gasoline, made an ideal anti-knock fuel. This new fuel was tried in a test engine with the quartz window. And not only could they see the villain become blue with defeat, but the knock was gone. Horsepower increased, speed picked up, and the engine actually cooled off considerably. And so, as a result of research in fuels, progress marched on. Midgley's answer to engine knocking was lead, or more precisely, tetraethyl lead, a compound discovered some 60 years earlier. Midgley's scientific method? He simply tried a lot of different additions before identifying tetraethyl as a possible solution. The only problem, lead, is poisonous. And even back then, that was not new information. Its toxicity has been known since ancient times. Hippocrates described lead poisoning in 400 BC, Roman architect Vitruvius wrote that water from earthenware pipes was healthier than from lead pipes, which was, he said, harmful to the body. In 17th century Germany, lead was even banned in one region when it was discovered that a lead-based wine sweetener was the cause of a local epidemic of colic. So lead's toxicity was well recorded even at the beginning of the 20th century. Jamie Lincoln Kitman, lawyer and veteran automotive journalist, wrote extensively about the history of leaded gasoline. His work on lead in gasoline won him an investigative reporting award. Kitman says the people involved in the production of tetraethyl lead were more than aware how dangerous lead was. There was definitely awareness that it was poisonous because they kept poisoning themselves making it and workers were dying in their factories. They, in their private correspondence, referred frequently to, you know, how dangerous it was. And Midgley had to decline speaking engagements in the 1920s because he was recovering from lead poisoning. That happened to him several times. And, of course, he didn't help his situation any by doing public demonstrations where he'd wash his hands in lead gasoline. And when he didn't keel over dead, he would say, see, it's fine. This, however, didn't prevent Midgley from patenting the new gasoline additive under its new name, ethyl. And because of the patent, unlike other possible anti-knock agents, ethyl had a chance of turning a profit for the company. The mass production of ethyl started soon afterwards. 
The new gasoline was marketed for its fuel-saving and speed-increasing attributes, but there was no mention of lead. One of the plants that was producing tetraethyl lead was the facility in Elizabeth, New Jersey, which will, soon enough, find itself in national headlines. The incident, which resulted in five deaths and more than 30 hospitalizations, led to the factory being called the Looney Building. Soon, the local government shut down the plant and discouraged people from buying the gasoline. In a matter of months, ethyl was gone from the East Coast market, but it was still being sold elsewhere in the U.S. The U.S. Public Health Service set up a hearing to investigate the dangers of leaded gasoline, but it seemed like most in the government were focusing solely on the effect the tetraethyl lead production had on the factory workers. Two prominent public health advocates came out strongly against leaded gasoline. Alice Hamilton, the first woman appointed to the faculty of Harvard University and a leading lead poisoning expert, testified against the use of lead in gasoline as she considered it both a menace to public health and the environment. But nobody spoke more loudly against ethyl than Yandel Henderson, who appropriately studied the toxicology of gases. He is recorded saying, The public is not in great danger of the acute poisoning, which caused several deaths and many cases of insanity recently. But the breathing day by day of fine lead dust from automobiles using leaded gasoline will produce chronic lead poisoning on a large scale in the populations of cities. Henderson described lead in gasoline as the greatest health menace the public ever faced. The industry responded with their own science, particularly through a man named Robert Kehoe. They forwarded a series of, of you know, disingenuous, if not, you know, complete lie arguments that were well, it's A, it stays in the engine, so don't worry. B, it falls harmlessly to the ground. And then as they started concocting their own essentially junk science, they argued that, well, people have naturally high lead levels anyway. At the point where they're arguing that the people have high lead levels in their bodies, Kehoe uh, does a study where they go to, to South America to study uh, an ancient civilization. Uh, and ironically, one can only imagine with some intention, they go to a community that was um, basically uh, uh, manufactured pottery and had extraordinarily high lead levels in their, their clay. Um, and so they, everybody was, you know, rubbing their hands in that all the time. And that was their basis for concluding that people always had high lead levels. Make sure to remember the name Robert Kehoe. He's going to be a recurring character in our story. In part due to Kehoe's studies, the warnings from prominent scientists fell on deaf ears. On January 20, 1926, investigators appointed by the Surgeon General announced they found no good grounds to prohibit the use of ethyl gasoline in automobiles. But that was not the whole story. That same day, a small article about the announcement appeared in the New York Times, Buried at the end of the article, there was an extract from the investigation report. It remains possible that if the use of leaded gasoline becomes widespread, conditions may arise very different from those studied by us, which would render its use more of a hazard than it would appear to be the case from this investigation. Longer experience may show that even such slight storage of lead as was observed in these studies may lead eventually in susceptible individuals to recognizable lead poisoning or chronic degenerative diseases of a less obvious character.
and they would misrepresent the findings of the Surgeon General's report uh, in 1926, saying, well, this, this proves that it's safe. That's absolutely not what it said. It said that, you know, we think it can be manufactured safely, as opposed to the way it had been where dozens of people were dying, you know, uh, in factories. Um, but, but we should study it more. Ethyl production carried on. By 1936, there would be 24 million cars in the U.S., and tetraethyl lead would be added to 90% of the gasoline sold across the U.S. Advertised as being perfectly safe, leaded gasoline would be exported around the world for decades to come. Factories would be set up in many other countries. It would become so omnipresent that people would forget that lead was an additive rather than an essential part of gasoline. It would take years before studies to challenge the corporate science were funded. All of this took decades to disprove, and it was completely debunked by the 1960s, although in the 1920s, when it was launched, there was a, a good awareness among the medical communities, uh, public health professionals, trade unions, that it was, it was fundamentally and irrevocably dangerous. It would be another 60 years before the world woke up to the dangers of leaded gasoline and governments around the world started implementing bans. And it wouldn't be until 2021 the United Nations announced the phase-out was complete. In the statement released to mark the occasion, the UN said, 2021 has marked the end of leaded petrol worldwide after it has contaminated air, dust, soil, drinking water and food crops for the better part of a century. Leaded petrol causes heart disease, stroke, and cancer. It also affects the development of the human brain, especially harming children, with studies suggesting it reduced IQ by 5 to 10 points. Banning the use of leaded petrol has been estimated to prevent more than 1.2 million premature deaths per year, to increase IQ points among children, to save $2.45 trillion for the global economy, and to decrease crime rates. As for Thomas Midgley, by 1925, before ethyl was allowed into production again, he had already moved on to other projects, not before taking another leave of absence from work due to lead poisoning. In the late 20s, Midgley started working on refrigerators and air conditioning, and that's when he synthesized some of the world's first chlorofluorocarbons, CFCs, remember them? These chemical compounds would go on to become the primary cause of ozone depletion in the atmosphere. Midgley patented them under their commercial name, Freon. Freon uh, was a non-flammable gas, uh, and so Midgley would do demonstrations, which was the thing he did with lead, where he'd wash his hands, where he'd inhale in front of an audience. He'd inhale Freon and blow out a match to prove that it was uh, non-flammable. That probably did not help his health either. By 1940, Midgley developed polio, and four years later he died, strangled by a device he concocted himself to help him to get out of bed. Since his death, Midgley has been called the most dangerous man of all time. One writer described him as a one-man environmental disaster, while another wrote that Midgley had a more adverse impact on the atmosphere than any other single organism in Earth's history. 
Nonetheless, his inventions changed the course of the 20th century. July 1934, on the banks of the Rio Grande. Not within the memory of the oldest inhabitant had such intolerable heat been known. Day after day, a fiery disk moved across the sky. From the sandy, sun-seared soil, dust clouds arose and drifted listlessly on a shriveling, desert-born breeze. Babies gasped for breath under the grueling ordeal of the hot wind. Beasts and man alike suffered the pangs of hunger, the agonies of thirst. And everywhere there were gruesome signs of the sun god's wrath. And in the towns and villages along the border, food preservation became a problem of increasing gravity. In the intense heat, milk soured, meat spoiled, and vegetables withered in just a few hours. Little children suffered the problem of safeguarding food became a question of life and death. Then, in the midst of the great heat wave, to protect the health of her two children, Mrs. Will Thompson bought a Frigidaire with Super Freezer. And through all the welter of heat and dryness, Frigidaire proved her wisdom and foresight. What you've just heard was a refrigerator ad from 1935. It might have been a tad dramatic, but the 1934 heat wave was indeed a record-breaking one, and not just in the U.S. A contributor to that year's bulletin of the American Meteorological Society wrote, Never before had there been so little rain over so wide a territory throughout the growing season. Like the Depression, the drought made itself felt as an international disaster. What was even more dramatic, though, was the change brought upon people's lives by the refrigerator. You might not have thought about it much, but life was very different before the fridge became a common appliance in every household. The appearance of refrigerators improved the quality of food. It meant people didn't have to go to the market as often and could store leftovers. This, in turn, increased food safety and improved people's health. Food prices decreased, and food became more readily available. All of this was brought about by the refrigerator. Even early civilizations knew how important it was to preserve food. The earliest records of refrigeration technology date back to 4,000 years ago. But the real breakthrough in the history of refrigeration came only in the 19th century when the ice trade began. Back then, Ice was harvested from ponds and lakes, stored in ice houses, and transported to cities. This had been done for centuries, but at the time, it was limited to the local area. In 1806, however, a man named Frederick Tudor from Boston began shipping ice to the Caribbean. That marked the official start of the frozen water industry. In the following decades, the ice trade would expand across the globe, with shipments reaching England, India, South America, China, and Australia. Brands of ice became well-known in some parts of the world, such as Wenham Lake Ice from America, which became quite popular in London. Cocktail recipes from the period even included the brand of ice you should use, so if you wanted to prepare Mrs. Beaton's original pineapple julep, you ought to have your Wenham Lake Ice chipped and broken into small pieces. 
Norway and the US became the two centers of this industry. By the end of the century, at its peak, the ice trade employed almost 100,000 people in the US, while Norway exported a million tons of ice each year. The industry became such a crucial part of people's life that occasions of scarcity of commercial ice were called ice famine. One of the reasons ice became such a hot commodity was the icebox, a device popularized in the second half of the 19th century and the early 20th century. You may have heard people in some parts of the world use this word when talking about a modern fridge, but in fact, what we will refer to as the icebox is its predecessor. An icebox was a cabinet where people stored food. A large block of ice would be placed in a tray near the top of the box so the cold air circulates down around the storage compartments where the food is. If they wanted to keep their food fresh, icebox owners had to replenish the melted ice regularly, usually by buying ice from their local iceman. Yeah, you heard me correctly. Besides a milkman and a postman, some cities and towns used to have a local iceman who would sell and deliver ice. People kept their iceboxes even when the first mechanical refrigerators appeared in the 1920s. The reason for that might also have been that the first fridges were quite dangerous. They used toxic and flammable refrigerants, such as ammonia. Just to illustrate how toxic these refrigerants could be, here's an excerpt from a 1936 New York Times news item. Two adults and ten children were overcome by ammonia fumes on the street at the intersection of Richardson Street and Meeker Avenue, Brooklyn, yesterday at 1.45 p.m., when a refrigerating unit of an old refrigerator was cracked while the machine was being dismantled. The victims were treated by an ambulance surgeon and returned to their homes. Jamie Lincoln Kipman is an award-winning investigative journalist who wrote extensively about the early days of the industry. The... Um refrigerator, the, as we know, it was uh, in the 1920s was relatively rare, expensive appliance. Only rich people really had them. Other people, you had ice boxes. They would take ice and, and you know, keep replacing it um, to keep their food uh, from spoiling. The uh, problem with those refrigerants were that were they were highly flammable. A rich person on Fifth Avenue would go out to a party and come home and their mansion would have burned down. So there was uh, quite a bit of agitation for something that was safer. And of course, um, General Motors, which had a refrigeration company in those days of uh, explosive growth called Frigidaire, uh, wanted something that they could sell to the mass market. Even though the first chlorofluorocarbon had been synthesized some 40 years earlier, Midgley improved the process and developed his first CFC, dichlorodifluoromethane, by combining the flammable hydrocarbon with two toxic gases, chlorine and fluorine. The result was a chemically inert compound that can be used as a refrigerant, which they named Freon. How does it work? Well, to make something cold, the main step is to remove heat. Freon has a very low boiling point which means that under low pressure, it turns from liquid to gas very quickly. This rapid evaporation absorbs heat quickly, and Freon becomes very cold very fast. When this reaction happens in the refrigerator coils, it makes them cold enough to refrigerate food. The gas is then compressed and condensed into a liquid. This process is then repeated over and over again. 
Freon didn't seem to be poisonous, and it was safer than the refrigerants used before it. Yet again, Midgley had a winner. The modern refrigerator was born. Frigidaire followed you through supermarkets, then designed this Frigidaire Imperial Cold Pantry to store food the way you buy it and use it. In the bottom, a separate food freezer for 66 pounds of frozen food. At the top, a nine cubic foot refrigerator with cyclomatic defrosting. A picture window hydrator that swings down. Ask your Frigidaire dealer for the Imperial Cold Pantry in Stratford Yellow, Sherwood Green, or Snowy White. Thanks to Freon, the refrigerator was finally ready to replace the icebox. At the start of the 1930s, just 8% of U.S. households owned an electric refrigerator. By the end of the decade, the share of households with a fridge reached 44%. But the refrigerator had its golden age after World War II. Just a few years after the war, 85% of the U.S. population had a fridge. In Europe, things moved a bit slower. In the 1930s, people still relied on communal cooling houses to store food, and the war didn't improve the situation. In 1954, more than 90% of Germans didn't have a fridge. At the same time, only 4% of Italian households owned a refrigerator. But things changed rapidly after that. Only 10 years later, Italy was the third most prolific exporter of refrigerators in the world, after the US and Japan. The share of households that owned a fridge jumped to 32%, and just a decade later, 86% of all Italian households had one. Mid-century, the Frigidaire refrigerator was so well-known that many Americans called any refrigerator a Frigidaire, regardless of its brand. In France, Canada, and some other French-speaking countries or areas, the word Frigidaire is often in use as a synonym today. The same is the case for countries of former Yugoslavia, where the name is still in use in its transcribed form as Frigidaire. to feel tragic the rest is push-button magic so whether you bake or broil or stew the Frigidaire kitchen does it all for you don't have to be chained to the stove all day just set the timer and you're on your way by the 1970s the refrigerator became the common household appliance we know today but before fridges went global how did Midgley and General Motors prove that these new gases were safe well, they didn't. They simply used the playbook they developed to launch leaded gasoline. Just like leaded gasoline, Freon was promoted heavily, the miracle chemical, they called it. Just as he did a few years earlier, Midgley went out to sell it to the public. And just as in the case of leaded gasoline, the one who conducted the study to prove the product was safe was Dr. Robert Kehoe. The problem with that was that all of the study was funded by the industries that, that created the product. And the federal government, which was essentially, you know, invited to do its own studies, did not. And it rather it let the so-called regulated industry uh, do its own science. And that's where you have Dr. Kehoe, who just has, you know, uh, shoddy report after report for the next 40 or 50 years, um, where he is essentially being paid to send up very misleading reports. Dr. Robert Kehoe, remember him? He's the one who went to South America to prove people had naturally high lead levels, 
than he found those already exposed to lead to prove his point. That's the guy. Kehoe was hired in the early days of Ethyl Corporation. His first job was to study health issues related to the production of tetraethyl lead. By now, you can imagine what he said. He found no evidence for the existence of any danger. In 1925, Kehoe would go on to testify during the conference on the future of leaded gasoline. Since leaded gasoline didn't exist up until just a few years earlier, there were no proper studies done on its effect on human health, even though we had centuries worth of information proving lead was toxic. The only source of information was Kehoe himself, and he was financed by the lead industry. Instead of advocating that the product was safe, Kehoe took another route. Knowing that there were no other studies, he advised to discontinue the sale of leaded gasoline, but only if it can be shown that it was dangerous. He reasoned that a product that economically beneficial should not be discarded simply on the basis of opinion. Sounds reasonable, right? Jamie Kitman doesn't think so. It takes advantage of sort of the endless malleability and debatability of science. You know, you can say, I mean, the, the scientific method at its best, people put hypotheses out and they're challenged. People can always review things and say, well, your data was bad. You didn't correct for this. You, you might have um, thought about this and uh or maybe that was true but it's not and and so they would just they were constantly you know just um you know it's like almost like a guerrilla tactic where you just go well here's this report and then it takes years for everybody to come to terms with the fact that it was it was nonsense kehoe put the burden of proof on the public instead of the company having to make sure its product was safe the public had to prove it was dangerous this paradigm, which assumes a lack of risk unless proven otherwise, has come to be known as the Kehoe Rule. It was a win-win situation for Ethyl. If the leaded gasoline turned out to be safe, they could still sell it. If not, it would take forever to prove so. And in the meantime, Kehoe could produce other studies proving his position. In case somebody came along with a study deeming it bad, Kehoe would simply call for more data and challenge the results. Another point, research requires funding, and unlike many scientists out there, Kehoe had the money. He would go on to hold the post of the company's chief medical consultant until his retirement in 1958. It would take decades to disprove his pseudoscience. People trace it back to the tobacco industry in the 1950s when they started basically denying what they knew to be true and coming up with junk science to... Uh, suggests that it wasn't that wasn't the reason because all you have to do is throw negative conclusion in some actually i would suggest that it goes back to the gasoline business in the 1920s all of that brings us up to uh global warming climate change um and the fact that the same exact company um used the same techniques it used in the 1920s to sell in lead gasoline to deny climate change, which their own scientists we now know were speaking about in the 1970s. And after allowing them, you know, some free reign for a few years, basically fired them all or muzzled them. And this whole thing, they spent the next 50 years with creating junk science, challenging um, 
other people's science that was detrimental to their position. You heard it. These companies didn't just invent numbers. They had competent scientists do proper studies for them. Then they would simply bury the results if they didn't fit their narrative. Kitman says this started back in the 1920s and continues today. The companies that convinced people leaded gasoline wasn't harming people and the environment are fueling climate change denial today. And over years, their methods just got more sophisticated. In the meantime, having been deemed safe by Kehoe, CFCs were discovered to have many other uses. First, they made refrigerators safe to use, which made food safer and cheaper. All kinds of products became available as food could safely travel across the country. Cross-country travel became more comfortable for passengers as well. CFCs were used in air conditioning for cars. And most importantly, they were used in aerosol sprays and the making of plastic foams. And while they were making our lives easier, they were destroying the environment. All of this on the premise that they were completely safe. But in the 1960s, the scientific community started pushing back. some sick oysters. Just what made them sick and just how they are to be cured are questions that stumped an entire oyster industry. The trouble started down in Louisiana on the Gulf of Mexico where the Louisiana oyster fishermen claim that oil production was killing off the local oyster population. The oil companies didn't agree but they decided to look into the matter. So they started what developed into a two million dollar oyster research program. Every possibility was explored. After years of study and progress, the results were in. The test oysters showed no ill effects from oil, even under conditions which far exceeded those ever present during oil production. As a matter of fact, the test oysters were so happy, they brought forth new generations to share their luck. They never had it so good. Well then, if this wasn't killing... The origins of the Louisiana oyster industry can be traced to the mid-19th century, when Croatian immigrants started harvesting and farming oysters. By the beginning of the next century, the southern state had already become one of the leading oyster producers in the U.S. Generations of Louisiana families worked in the oyster industry, and the oyster left an indelible mark on the state's culture, so much so that today an oyster shell is the official state gemstone of Louisiana. But at the peak of the Louisiana oyster industry back in the 1930s, oysters suddenly started dying on the shores. The local oystermen knew who to blame. The oil industry had just recently set up its camp in the Gulf of Mexico. When a state biologist concluded that the pollution caused by the oil companies was killing the oysters, the industry replied with its own science. That was the science you just heard in the clip. Just like the study, the film was produced back in the 1960s by the oil industry. This was not the first time around science was used to convince society that it should accept potentially dangerous and harmful products and activities. Corporate funding for research was nothing new then, and it's still more than present today. It's one of the two main sources of funding alongside government support. This is not necessarily bad. It just means that more regulation is required so that corporations don't influence the outcome of the research. 
but multiple studies conducted in recent years concluded industry-sponsored studies tend to be biased in favor of the sponsor's products. A 2018 review of 36 such studies published by the University of Sydney found that corporate interests can drive research agendas away from questions that are most relevant for public health. What you'll hear next is a story about two men. The scientist who dared to confront the lead industry, Claire Cameron Patterson, and the man he went up against, the man who spent his entire life defending lead and gasoline, and whom you've come to know quite well by now, Robert Kehoe. And in Patterson, Kehoe had finally found his match. Claire Cameron Patterson didn't have much choice about becoming a chemist. His parents made sure of it. When his school in the small Iowa city of Mitchellville didn't have a laboratory, they helped him set up one in their basement. So when he graduated from high school at 16 and went to study chemistry, nobody was surprised. Nobody was surprised that he was really good at it as well. During World War II, Patterson, then a young scientist just out of school, was called up to work on the Manhattan Project. Patterson described it as evil later in his life. He spent the rest of his career making up for it. In his university years, Patterson got interested in another natural science, geology. But he couldn't abandon his first love, chemistry, so he did the only thing he could think of. In 1952, he started working at the California Institute of Technology, where he became a founding member of its geochemistry program. We live our history, study it, interpret its conditions and forces, make monuments to it, understand some of it. And one way or another, human history is recorded. But what is the meaning of valleys and streams? Are the rocks that form them only inert monuments to conditions and forces no longer existing? Do we merely guess at the history of the earth? How does geology, the historical science, know how the face of the earth took its features? Patterson's first great accomplishment came when he accurately calculated the exact age of the Earth. His measurement of 4.55 billion years has barely been approved upon since 1956. To measure the planet's age, he developed a dating method using lead. A big chunk of his research actually included measuring lead levels, and he did this across the globe. This is how he discovered that lead contamination was present everywhere. For example, he found that deep ocean water contained up to 20 times less lead than surface water. But what he didn't know was the origin of this massive pollution. So he started reading through lead-related research. Somebody's name kept popping up, Robert Kehoe. Throughout the previous 40 years, Kehoe had become the foremost expert on lead in the U.S., a title he didn't earn because of his extensive scientific credentials, but for the simple reason that he had the funding. You can't do research like this without money. But Kehoe's research was fully funded by the leaded gasoline industry, and the industry had the final say on what he was allowed to publish. Already at a first glance, Kehoe's numbers made no sense to Patterson, so he used his lead dating method to investigate what was really happening. Patterson traveled around the world digging for snow, old snow to be precise. 
Why did he do that? Well, in the polar regions, young snow settles on top of old ice. And by digging down, you can basically go back in time. The deeper you go, the older the ice is. Patterson harvested 4,000-year-old, 400-year-old, 200-year-old, and 30-year-old snow. The numbers he got told a story very different from what Kehoe was selling. Patterson found that lead concentrations had increased from below 0.001 micrograms of lead per kilo of ice in 800 BC to more than 0.2 in the 1960s. Or to put it more clearly, contemporary lead levels were more than 200 times higher than they were in the 1700s. And what was even more shocking, the sharpest rise occurred after 1940. It didn't take long before Patterson identified tetraethyl lead as the culprit. Now comes the interesting part. Patterson's project, the one where he went around measuring lead all over the world, was funded by the oil and gas industry. When he was looking for funding for his research, a colleague helped him get the money by convincing oil companies that Patterson's work would help them identify oil deposits. That was not exactly true, but now Patterson was going against the industry that financed his work. What was he going to do? Even early in his career, Patterson was known as an eccentric, a man completely dedicated to his science. He was so careful about possible contamination of his results that he created one of the first clean rooms. Clean rooms are those extremely well-isolated and deeply cleansed laboratories you've probably seen in movies. That's how much he cared about his work. When the oil industry realized that he was looking into lead, they offered to fund his other research. He rejected them. He wasn't about to get his research buried. Soon after, Patterson wrote a paper about his findings entitled Contaminated and Natural Lead Environments of Man, which set off a national discussion about air pollution. This is our Earth, our home, our life. It's a finite thing, a sphere of specific size with certain basic resources distributed around its surface. There's just so much land, so much water, so much air. Yet our very existence depends on them. As we have progressed as a people, as we have had our children, built our homes, tilled our fields, erected our factories, and driven our cars, we have taken liberally of our Earth's resources. And we've scattered our waste products, often without wisdom or restraint, without consideration of the effects on the quality of our lives or the lives of our children. Of all the threats to our environment, air pollution is the most serious and perhaps the most difficult to solve. There are ways to restore the damaged land. We can purify our drinking water, but we must breathe the air as it comes to us. And every day it comes to us more heavily burdened with harmful and sometimes dangerous pollutants. The year was 1966. As air quality became a hot topic both in the U.S. and abroad, the U.S. Senate held hearings on the Clean Air Act which was getting an update. The hearings had become the scene of Kehoe and Patterson's first public confrontation, 
Both men were invited to testify and present their cases. They were both questioned by Senator Edward Muskie of Maine, often referred to as the father of the 1960s environmental movement in America. Here's Muskie speaking in a video report prepared for the hearings. We've obtained the information we have gathered and the control equipment we have developed to prevent further contamination of the air we breathe. First up in the hot seat was Kehoe. He started off his testimony by humbly saying that his knowledge on the topic was so extensive that if he were to say everything he knew, quote, they would be there for the rest of the week, unquote. For Kehoe, there was no doubt. Lead in gasoline was not a threat. He said, no other hygienic problem in the field of air pollution has been investigated so intensively over such a prolonged period of time and with such definitive results. In the period between 1930 and 1960, just 30 years, the population of our country increased by half. The number of automobiles on our roads doubled. Our investment in industrial plants and equipment went up 500%, and our output of power to keep all this going rose 600%. Pressed with these numbers from the Senate report, Kehoe hit back with the results of a study done in Cincinnati. According to the study, lead levels in Cincinnati actually decreased over a period of 30 years. Muskie found this hard to believe, but Kehoe was not budging. Even when asked if he would support a non-toxic substitute for lead if one were to be discovered, he again answered that there was no reason to replace lead. Pushed repeatedly by Muskie, he refused to answer and said, maybe without being aware of the irony, that, quote, as a matter of principle, we must investigate every matter that we introduce into our environment, unquote. A week later, it was Patterson's turn to testify. Claire Patterson had the reputation of being very straightforward, some would say blunt. He came across as such in his testimony. First, he explicitly said that the sole goal of those rejecting the results of his research is to sell lead. Patterson then went after Kehoe's arguments. He said that the numbers in Cincinnati were false. Lead levels had increased, in fact. Kehoe neglected to mention that the study wasn't exactly scientifically sound. Early Cincinnati measurements included those taken from the city's industrial areas. The later samples just didn't include as many industrial sites, so higher lead levels recorded earlier weren't that much of a surprise. In the following years, under proper scientific scrutiny, most of Kehoe's studies would be disproven. Maybe Kehoe wasn't fully aware of how bad exhaust lead was. Maybe he just didn't understand how bad his scientific methods were. No matter what, he spent his long life convinced that he was right, so much so that before Patterson's article, which started all of this, came out, he was one of the people who supported its publication. Kehoe advocated for the paper to be accepted and wrote, I should let the man, with his obvious faults, speak in such a way as to display these faults. In the end, it was Kehoe whose faults were on display. After he came out swinging against lead, Patterson was refused contracts with many organizations. The oil industry worked hard to get others to rescind his grants. He was subjected to personal attacks. Nonetheless, he persevered. His work would prove to be the beginning of the end for lead and gasoline. Patterson didn't consider himself an environmentalist. He was just a scientist dedicated to his craft. But he did set a path for other scientists whose research didn't necessarily go along with what the industry wanted. Two of those scientists 
were Frank Sherwood Rowland and Mario Molina. Ozone fluid net hairspray works, yet it leaves hair feeling like hair. Ozone fluid net contains no lacquer, doesn't clump the hair together or paste the hairdo down. You can't tell that a woman uses it by the way her hair looks. Her hair can look as natural as unsprayed hair. Ozone fluid net, the hairdresser's hairspray in the pink and gray can. Early hairsprays were developed in Europe during the Roaring Twenties, but they reached their height of popularity in the 1960s. You needed quite a bit of hairspray to create the trendy updos of that period. In 1968, the production of hairsprays alone was almost the same as the total number of aerosol cans produced in the previous decade. And yes, you heard me correctly, the hairspray featured in the commercial you just listened to was named Ozone. Pretty ironic considering that the chemicals used as propellants in hairsprays and other aerosol cans from the period were actually destroying the ozone layer. In previous episodes, we spoke about chlorofluorocarbons and their original role as refrigerants, but that was not CFC's only use. As a matter of fact, it was just a fraction of the use. Before anyone knew how harmful they were for the environment, CFCs were used in everything from aerosol sprays and air conditioning to the making of plastic foam. In 1974, six billion aerosol sprays were produced in the world, while the annual global production of CFCs was close to a million tons. That same year, two chemists finally answered the question, what happens to CFCs after they're released into the atmosphere? Once called miracle chemicals, CFCs were about to be exposed as chemical pollutants. In 1970, Frank Sherwood Rowland had been the chemistry department chair at the University of California in Irvine for six years. Feeling uninspired by his day job, he asked his school for money to go to a conference organized by the International Atomic Energy Agency in Vienna. Traveling through Austria, he met a man who worked for the U.S. Department of Energy. Hearing about his background, the man invited him to participate in the department's new workshops on chemistry and meteorology. Roland was a chemist, but without a lot of experience in atmospheric science. Well, that's not entirely true. When he was 15, Roland volunteered at his local weather station, collecting data on rainfall and local temperatures. Besides that, he didn't know much about chemical processes in the atmosphere. But Roland was intrigued. One of these workshops, held two years later, would set him on the path that would mark his career. I was invited to the one that was in... 1972, and uh, at that meeting, uh, I heard discussion uh, of the uh, work being done by Jim Lovelock, who had invented uh, the gas chromatograph, it invented the electron capture detector. That detector sort of increased the sensitivity by somewhere between 10,000 and 100, 10,000 and a million. It, it changed CFCs from something that was undetectable to being easily detectable, and that uh, that he found it everywhere, uh, on a cruise uh, from England to South America, to South America and on to Antarctica. But then 
when it, the following year, when I was writing my proposal for the uh, Atomic Energy Commission, I included that as a, a one-page add-on to investigate what would happen to the CFCs. The ozone was not mentioned. Roland needed someone to help him with his research, though. At that time, Mario Molina, a young Mexican chemist, was just finishing up his PhD at the University of California, Berkeley. Molina and Roland, often affectionately called Sherry by those close to him, were both based in California and had met during local professional events. They got along well and shared similar interests despite their 15-year age difference. So a year later, Molina joined Roland's lab as a postdoctoral fellow. The two scientists were discussing what Molina should focus on when a research project caught the young chemist's eye. It was Roland's CFC research proposal. The question was, what happens? In, it's a very open question. What process would destroy these molecules in the natural environment? Biology uh, or some chemical reactions yet to be discovered or... Both chemists had some knowledge about what happened in the atmosphere, but to do the research, they had to learn everything they could about atmospheric chemistry. Luckily, both had already worked with compounds similar to CFCs. question for completeness in the back of our minds is, let's look at the whole cycle. So these things are produced industrially, so they're destroyed there. And then eventually the, the atoms combined, perhaps in different molecular forms, make it back to the, to the Earth's surface. But is there something in between? Yeah, well, they must react with us. Hey, that's, there's, industry was more or less reassured that these compounds are so stable, even if it wasn't clear what they would destroy, but there's absolutely nothing to worry about. <laughs> As we've seen before in our story, it turned out the industry was wrong. For Molina and Roland, the first step was to investigate how CFCs decompose. CFCs were known to be very stable chemicals. That much was true, at least when they stayed in the troposphere, the lower part of the atmosphere. For those who are not familiar with the atmosphere, it has five major layers. From lowest to highest, they are troposphere, stratosphere, mesosphere, thermosphere, and exosphere. For the sake of this story, we're mostly interested in the first two, the troposphere, where most of Earth's weather happens, and the stratosphere, which hosts the ozone layer. Let's get back to Molina and Roland now. Pretty soon, Molina figured out that if CFCs don't get destroyed at lower altitudes, they simply continue to go up. One of the questions was, is there a process that will destroy them in competition to destruction in the stratosphere, which means that only a, a smaller fraction will get there. But the numbers appear to indicate that it was comparable to what had been industrially produced. So we knew there was no fast process. At higher altitudes, CFC molecules abide by a different set of rules. And that's because higher stratosphere is exposed to the sun's ultraviolet light. The only thing protecting the lower atmosphere from this radiation is the ozone layer. So what happens to CFCs when they reach this height? Molina himself conceded that at the time, it seemed a bit far-fetched, but soon enough, they formulated a theory. Molina and Sherwood's theory was that ultraviolet light can break apart CFC molecules, releasing chlorine atoms, 
which react easily with ozone molecules composed of three oxygen atoms. When a chlorine atom encounters an ozone molecule, it takes one of the oxygen atoms away, leaving oxygen, O2, and chlorine monoxide, ClO. Chlorine monoxide then reacts with another ozone molecule, converting it to two oxygen molecules, and in doing so, frees the chlorine to do more damage. Based on their calculations, they came to a shocking conclusion. One chlorine atom could destroy over 100,000 ozone molecules before it's removed from the stratosphere. And let's just remind ourselves that at the time, the yearly production of CFCs was close to a million tons globally. Molina and Roland knew straight away the ozone layer was in real danger. In 1974, Molina and Rowland published a paper with their findings in Nature, the same journal where the discovery of the ozone hole would be announced 11 years later. The paper described how, based on the calculations of present and future CFC's emissions in the atmosphere, they expected a 20 to 40% decrease in the ozone layer within 40 to 150 years. Initially, it didn't make as much of an impact as they were hoping. The two scientists didn't know how to get media attention. So they decided to present their research during the annual American Chemical Society's national meeting, hoping the media and fellow scientists might finally hear their warnings. They also invited a Dutch scientist, Paul Crutzen, whose research on ozone helped them formulate their own theory. It was a place where you could communicate to at least to other chemists and so on. So we sort of naively organized a, a press conference. And we thought, okay, let's... We made the list, we'll invite first somebody that will tell about the measurements that they are measured in the atmosphere, repeating, sort of summarizing Lovelock's results, and then uh, Paul Cruz and how the atmosphere works, and then we'll tell our story. Why was it very naive? Because that's not the way <laughs> press conferences work with the media. You have to come up with a punchline at the very beginning. So practically all the reporters left at the, the very first. <laughs> so nobody, nobody was there when we talked about our <laughs> findings later, of course, we learned hard. And then we did begin to make news, but slowly, because it was a, a, not something common. It was a sort of an unusual thing to, to talk about. Invisible gases, invisible rays, in, invisible atmosphere. Some scientists also didn't react positively. They thought Roland and Molina were just trying to make the news. Others, however, were scared by the implications of the theory. They went back to their labs and decided to replicate Roland and Molina's study. Within two weeks of the conference, multiple sources confirmed their results. Some noted that Molina and Roland did make one mistake. These scientists thought ozone could be destroyed even faster than the duo had predicted. September 1978, three months after the paper had been published, the story made front-page news. People were getting scared. Aerosol spray sales went down. Governments started considering CFC regulations. The CFC industry knew it had to respond, and quickly. They didn't flat-out deny the findings of the study. The industry used the leaded gasoline playbook. 
Industry representatives said that what Roland and Molina presented was just a theory, which hadn't been proven with any relevant ozone measures. They said they were more than willing to change something, but only after substantial data could be presented to them. On the other hand, scientists across the planet were warning that by the time they had the actual data, the problem might be too big to control. The industry replied with its own set of data. They came out with the numbers related to the financial impact CFC regulation would have on the economy. There are no chemicals available to replace CFCs, industry representatives said. To appear less confrontational, a trade group representing the companies promised to finance a study to test the theory. However, it would take three years before they would have the results. The potential danger of future CFC emissions was minimized and obscured by the implications for the global economy, which was, at the time, in recession. The stalling tactic worked. Regulation was put on hold, and over the following years, the industry worked hard to undermine the ozone depletion theory and the scientists behind it, using progressively more sophisticated methods. The industry, of course, had a lot to lose. CFCs were a multi-billion dollar industry back then. Around one million people worked in these companies, but what the scientists were warning of was threatening all life on Earth. The industry reaction was twofold. Companies started studying possible substitutes for CFCs. All the while, their public relations machine worked overtime to discredit the ozone theory and the scientists behind it by painting them as alarmists. The idea was to make it seem as if the ozone depletion was just another occurrence of mass hysteria. They did so by using an old European folktale about a chicken who believes that the world is coming to an end. After a pea, an acorn in other versions of the story, falls on her head, poor Henny Penny starts telling everybody around her the sky is falling. The story ends tragically for poor Henny Penny and all her followers. Soon enough, the phrase went viral, in a 1970s kind of way. Major publications were publishing stories based on press releases devised by the CFC industry. The moral of the story was clear. Don't be as delusional as poor Henny Penny. Don't listen to these scientists. The industry spent millions influencing public opinion against the ozone theory, while the sky is falling became a chant of sorts for ozone science deniers. We can identify three main elements of this disinformation campaign. Let's take an example from a 1975 New York Times article entitled Look Up and Live, the Ozone is Still There. The first goal is to present the scientists as fear-mongers. The author of the article starts by asking the reader, should we ban fluorocarbons now and get the facts later, or get the facts first? And subsequently ends the article with a reminder that Henny Penny, who first postulated that the sky was falling when an acorn fell on her head, was subsequently proved wrong. The second element is to instill fear about the prospects for the economy and the financial cost of CFC regulation. The author writes, Fluorocarbons are used in refrigeration, air conditioning, industrial solvents, fire extinguishers, and about half of all aerosol products. Then adds with a tinge of irony, Undoubtedly, we could all survive without these. The financial argument was a particularly convincing one at the time. The world was going through a recession. 
people were rightfully afraid of the impact of the ban on their lives, CFCs were used in everything from their refrigerators to their deodorants. An average American family had 40 to 50 spray cans in their household. The CFC industry threw a lot of numbers around, such as the $135 billion cost that would be incurred by banning the chemicals. Yet the number that was ignored was the cost of doing nothing. The damage to our crops, the increase in skin cancer, the impact on weather patterns in the atmosphere. Regular citizens were hit with all this information at once, with warnings about the economy on one side and alarm bells for the impending ecological disaster on the other. How were they to decide whom to trust? And finally, the third element is the uncorroborated science about the increase of the ozone in the atmosphere. But not every journalist at the time was trying to purposefully undermine ozone science. A lot of reporting from the period suffered from a particular media bias we now call false balance. The New York Times explains false balance, sometimes called both-sidism, as the practice of journalists who, while trying to be fair, present each side of a debate as equally credible, even when the evidence is stacked heavily on one side. Naomi Oreskes, Harvard professor of the history of science, wrote a lot about this. Her 2010 book, Merchants of Doubt, co-authored with Eric Conway, draws parallels between climate change and earlier debates over tobacco smoking, acid rain, and the hole in the ozone layer. So one of the reasons that this, this denial is so damaging and also difficult to counter is because it takes the strength of science and tries to turn it into a weakness. And we call this the jujitsu move of climate denial. So one of the strengths of science is that scientists are open-minded, that scientists acknowledge the uncertainties in their data. It's considered required if you write a scientific paper to have a section on the limits of the methods or the uncertainties in the data, or to give error bars to do an error analysis on your data. So to be honest and open about the uncertainties and to acknowledge the areas where new and more work is needed, because that's how science advances. Science is advanced by dogmatically saying this is the fact and that's the end of the story. No, science advances by saying here are things we're pretty sure about and here are things we still need to look at more closely. And that's the strength of science. The deniers and skeptics take this strength of science and they turn it into weakness. The fact that a scientist acknowledges there's some aspect of the problem that's not fully resolved is then transmuted into the claim that we don't know anything, even when, of course, we actually know a lot. They then exploit this by pressuring journalists to cover both sides of the issue. So one of the things the tobacco industry did, and we know this for a fact because we have the documents that have come out of legal discovery, uh, they would pressure journalists, they would pressure editors, they would schedule meetings with the editors of prominent newspapers like the New York Times in the United States um, to present their side of the story. And then they would exploit so just as they exploited a strength of science to try to turn into weakness, they did the same thing in journalism. So objectivity is obviously a virtue, and it's a strength of journalists when they strive to be objective and to tell both sides of the story when there really are two sides. Certainly in a political debate, that's a very reasonable framework to present the diverse views on an issue. But they exploited that and pressured journalists to present their side of the story, even when their side was actually a lie when their side was a deception. So in the case of tobacco by the 1960s, we had overwhelming proof that tobacco, smoking tobacco use caused not just lung cancer, but a whole host of diseases, including heart disease, high blood pressure, blindness, pancreatic cancer, I mean, a very long list of 
terrible deadly diseases caused by using tobacco products. That was the truth of the matter. The industry was telling a lie. They were saying, well, we didn't really know. We weren't really sure. Maybe smoking was even good for you. And that was a claim that was made back in the 40s and 50s and even sometimes in the 60s. Um, you know, these lung cancers might really have been caused by asbestos or radon, right? They had a whole set of distracting, deflecting, and deceiving arguments. And they pressured journalists to present their arguments as if they were equal in weight, equal in validity to the scientific positions. And the reality is that practically all the journalists fell for it, including some of the most you know, respected newspapers in America, like the New York Times. And for you know, well into the late 1970s, the New York Times was still presenting the views of tobacco industry executives as, quote, the other side, as if they were of equal validity to the scientific conclusions. Um, now, so then the exact same thing happened in climate change. And for decades, even after the scientific evidence that man-made climate change was happening was overwhelming, even after the IPCC had published multiple reports on this issue, most journalist outlets were still presenting the disinformation, the denialist side as a counter, uh, because they felt that that was, you know, that was balance, that was objectivity. But really, it's what we've called false equivalence. They're treating a lie or a misleading statement as if it's equivalent to proven scientific facts. And that, of course, was extremely damaging. Those were just some of the ways the industry tried to shape the public debate on ozone depletion. At the same time, industry scientists were trying to influence the scientific discussion regarding ozone loss, often without having direct experience with ozone research. Los Angeles Times science journalist Sharon Rowan wrote how, at the height of the debate, the U.S. chemical industry invited a prominent British meteorologist, Richard Scorer, to do a speaking tour to disprove the theory. In the July 8, 1975 edition of the New York Times, Scorer was quoted as describing the theory as utter nonsense and saying that natural forces play a greater role in ozone loss than man-made chemicals. In his speaking engagements, he referred to ozone scientists as doomsayers. A day after the New York Times article was published, Scorer was a guest on Firing Line, a long-running American public affairs talk show, where he clashed with the former governor of Delaware and influential environmentalist Russell Peterson. The discussion was moderated by Firing Line's longtime host and political commentator, William Buckley Jr. But the key issue here, as I see it, is whether or not the government is going to uh, exercise its assignment of deciding whether over the long term the health and security of our whole uh, ecosystem is a corporate responsibility. Well, that's right, whether or not uh, that is uh, threatened here. And uh, too often we make decisions in <coughs> our system which are more oriented toward near-term benefits, mm -hmm. profits for example, than toward the long-term uh, consequences. And one of the profits can have long-term benefits. Oh, I'm not talking sure negatively about profits. I'm sure the academicians are living off the profits yeah. that were made 100 years ago. I think that our profit system is a very good one. It has many That's uh, right, you merits. were a Republican governor. Well, I also was deeply involved in industry for 26 years, so I know how the system yeah, works. Mr. Scorer, of course, is a member of the Labor Party. But that's only the beginning of his disagreements mm -hmm. with you, is that correct? Do you feel, Mr. Scorer, that uh, enough evidence has accumulated 
to uh, gainsay, even at this point, the putative findings of this commission. We've just had July the 4th, and I am utterly appalled at what Mr. Peterson says. He's saying that the government is going to tell everybody what to do about this situation. And I come from Socialist Britain, where I understand it's looked at from this side as, as though we're trying to control everybody. And I feel very free over there, and I come over here and find the governor trying <coughs> to uh, get some boffins to advise some uh, bureaucrats and perhaps some politicians what they're going to tell everybody what to do. Well, it's not only July the 4th, it's also the 200th anniversary of the Wealth of Nations, and Adam Smith would have considered it perfectly uh, legitimate to tell people what to do insofar as it was necessary to conserve natural resources. But one thing or about national Adam monuments, as he Well, I, I'm not a disciple of Adam Smith by any means, but <coughs> what I'm getting at really is that uh, he's participating in this process of taking away from the individual any responsibility for his own actions and life. And this, I thought, was what uh, people in this country were criticizing about socialism. Well, but, but if you're making a social point, this becomes a little bit complicated because if, if in fact, I have it in my power to pollute the air that, other, that I breathe exclusively, you might say this is a nice solipsistic uh, relationship between me and the air, but unfortunately, I can't pollute my air without polluting yours, can I? And yes, you do not have the right to cry fire in a crowded building. Yeah, that's yes, right. But, but our prime concern should be to get people to manage their own lives, not to tell them how to manage them. I rejoice to hear that from a socialist. I think mm. that uh, you got this analyzed completely wrong, uh, Professor I was Stoyer. nearly going on what you said. The, uh, because what we need to do is to get the individual to uh, also exercise some responsibility, not to uh, just rush ahead with his own objectives to take care of his near-term goals without being concerned about the problems that are created for the other millions of people around the globe. And talking about Adam Smith, he talked, as you well remember, about the invisible hand, that if uh, government freed up man to pursue his economic ventures as he saw fit, that there was an invisible hand that would direct him in a way to serve the public interest. But one thing that Adam Smith didn't appreciate, he wrote his work 200 years ago, was there also an invisible foot. And that if you don't uh, uh, pay attention to what you're doing, that foot can come around and kick you too. And that's what we're talking about here today when we are concerned about what will be the negative impacts of exploiting the positive virtues of things like the fluorocarbons. Scorer's talking points about individual responsibility were quite at odds with his background in studying air pollution, another man-made environmental crisis. It was also odd that despite becoming a prominent name in the ozone debate, Scorer never conducted any studies on ozone depletion, nor did he publish anything on the topic. Peterson, at the time the chairman of the President's Council on Environmental Quality, openly advocated CFC regulation and would be remembered for his famous words, we cannot afford to give chemicals the same constitutional rights that people enjoy under law. Chemicals are not innocent until proven guilty. In the years that followed, new reports with new predictions about the state of the ozone layer were published, but there were still no definitive measures to prove or disprove Molina and Rowland's theory. When the three years the industry requested to conduct additional research went by, the group representing CFC manufacturers requested an extension. The clock was ticking, but not much had been done. 
The United States was the first to react with some regulation. In 1978, the country banned CFCs from all aerosols. Canada and Scandinavian countries followed, but the regulation had no impact on other uses of CFCs. In 1981, seven years after Molina and Roland's paper, Denmark, Germany, the Netherlands, Canada, Norway, Sweden, and the European Commission renewed their call for immediate international action. But amidst all the reports and the infighting, apathy seemed to have set in. As late as 1986, industry representatives were recorded saying that according to their projections, the level of CFC's emissions did not present a threat to the ozone layer for the following 100 years. At the time, a spokesman for a company that produced CFCs was recorded as saying that the only way for the industry to change its ways was regulation. The New Yorker journalist, Paul Brodeur, interviewed Sherwood Rowland many times during those years. Rowland, who actively participated in the ozone debate since the beginning, was disappointed by the lack of action on the global scale. He was also worried about the fact that most of the funding in atmospheric research was coming from the industry. During one of their interviews in 1984, Roland famously said, nothing will be done about the problem until there is further evidence that a significant loss of ozone has occurred. Unfortunately, this means that if there is a disaster in the making in the stratosphere, we are probably not going to avoid it. Just a year later, the evidence came in that disaster had struck. Farmer, Gardner, and Shanklin announced they had discovered the ozone hole in the Antarctic. The sky was falling. Ozone is an invisible upper atmospheric gas that protects all forms of life on Earth from most of the sun's damaging radiation. Radiation that can cause skin cancer, eye damage, and suppression of the immune system. The harvesting of fish and plant life are also affected. A vast amount of aquatic life has its beginnings in the oceans near Antarctica. False color imagery of the South Pole from NASA's Nimbus 7 satellite provides scientists with a roadmap of daily changes in the ozone. By tracking this imagery for the past nine years, they have discovered a trend. Each spring over Antarctica, a hole in the ozone develops, and it has been getting larger year by year. To date, as much as 50 to 60% of the ozone in this area has been lost. These discoveries prompted a coordinated series of Antarctic ozone experiments. Scientists used ground-based instruments and launched balloon-borne payloads to sample air chemistry at McMurdo Station in Antarctica. At the same time, NASA's DC-8 Flying Laboratory studied the lower atmosphere, making long missions from Punta Arenas, Chile, into the area of ozone depletion. NASA's high-flying ER-2 plane, carrying a single pilot and a handful of sampling instruments, flew directly into a layer of atmosphere where the ozone was depleted. A number of activities contributing to ozone loss have been pinpointed by the scientific and policy community. No longer do canned aerosol products contain chlorofluorocarbons, or CFCs, but these harmful gases still get into the atmosphere because they are used as refrigerants, fire retardants, foam blowing agents, and solvents. As long as this persists, ozone will continue to be lost. 
In the decade before the discovery in Antarctica, many scientists and politicians tried to explain the ozone loss theory to the public, but it was a challenge to show what was really happening in the atmosphere. For many, ozone loss was just a theory, invisible gases in the Earth's invisible atmosphere. That was about to change. Mario Molina remembers when NASA's plane took off to measure the ozone over Antarctica to confirm the existence of ozone loss. Yeah, because were, we were, of course, fascinated at expecting this. They were flying from southern Chile, from Punta Arenas, taking off all the way to uh, uh, Antarctica. Will we hear anything else from the pilots? But they were able to return. The first two flights, the instruments didn't work, but then... Uh, uh, then the results came in. So that's the smoking gun. And so that's the sort of thing, I mean, of course... There was a hole in the sky. It was no longer just a theory. Graphics produced by NASA were vivid and clear. Within days, the images were seen in every corner of the planet. The evidence was finally there. The industry, which had for years been asking for data that would confirm the theory, finally had the data, and it was inescapable. After a decade-long discussion, the time for action had finally arrived. It was a very rapid transition. And I think, in part, it was the, the graphics that could go with it. Um, NASA very quickly put out pictures showing the ozone hole. And it was blindingly obvious to anybody that you, you could see, right, there's, there's a difference. that the, the ozone has gone over Antarctica. The other aspect was that decrease in ozone links into an increase in ultraviolet light reaching the surface, which increases the likelihood of getting skin cancer. So as soon as you mention cancer as an issue, then that reaches the public awareness as well. And there is greater pressure on the politicians to do something about it. That was Jonathan Shanklin, one of the British scientists who first discovered the ozone hole. Towards the end of the summer of 1987, representatives of nations from all over the world met up to discuss the ozone crisis in Montreal, Canada. The first issue to be resolved was how to achieve an agreement between developed nations and developing countries on the limitations of CFC use. During the negotiations, even CFC companies in some countries facing national regulation and fearing an unequal playing field, started calling for an international agreement that would regulate CFC emissions. On September 16, 1987, 24 countries and the European Community, which is today the European Union, signed the Montreal Protocol, an international agreement with the singular goal of protecting the ozone layer. The protocol would go on to become the first universally ratified treaty in United Nations history. Under the agreement, participating countries were supposed to freeze and then reduce their emissions of ozone-depleting substances. If that was all we had ever done, we would, we would have a catastrophic situation on the planet right now, everywhere, actually. So people don't realize that that was only the beginning of this. The, the policymakers were very careful. And so the original protocol you know, was just a start. And um, so we didn't, as scientists at that point, say, hallelujah, you know, it's all done now. You know, that, that would never, that wouldn't make sense because we knew it was just the beginning. That was Susan Solomon, the atmospheric chemist 
who linked the ozone hole to CFCs. And she's right. The Montreal Protocol was just the beginning. The final nail in the CFC's coffin came in 1989, when the European community decided to ban the production and the use of chlorofluorocarbons by 2000. Immediately after the announcement, the US decided to ban CFCs by the end of the century as well. At the time, the European community in the US accounted for 70% of all CFC production. It was the end of an era. Both of Thomas Midgley Jr.'s harmful inventions were finally left in the past. Since then, the protocol has been amended many times to further regulate CFCs and has been hailed as the most successful international environmental agreement. And today, every single UN member state has, has signed it. And I think that is really amazing that um, what I thought of at the time was a, a minor discovery over Antarctica um, did turn into something that has affected everybody on the planet. The Montreal Protocol worked, which is why you don't hear so much about the ozone layer these days. Nations across the world gathered and solved the crisis together. A report on the progress of the Montreal Protocol is published every four years. In the 2023 edition, the United Nations confirmed the phase-out of nearly 99% of banned CFCs and other ozone-depleting substances. According to the report, if current policies remain in place, the ozone layer is expected to recover to 1980 values by 2040. Over the Arctic, it will take until 2045. Above Antarctica, recovery is only expected by around 2066. Besides helping heal the ozone layer, the treaty protected human health. The Montreal Protocol may have prevented up to 2 million cases of skin cancer each year by 2030 and avoided millions of cases of cataracts worldwide. The United States Environmental Protection Agency expects that the full implementation of the protocol will prevent 443 million cases of skin cancer, 2.3 million skin cancer deaths, and 63 million cases of cataracts for people born between 1890 and 2100 in the United States alone. If we hadn't stopped putting chlorofluorocarbons into the atmosphere, um, there would be two things. One, um, it would be getting to the stage where ozone depletion is not constrained to the polar regions. It starts becoming significant in highly populated regions, and therefore there's more ultraviolet light coming through, greater risk of skin cancers, and uh, increased mortality in the population. So that's the, the sort of one scenario. The other is, of course, that we have had significantly more global warming because the chlorofluorocarbons are greenhouse gases in their own right, much more effective than carbon dioxide. So a small amount of extra chlorofluorocarbon has a bigger effect than carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And so, Exactly how much warming, I'm, I'm not certain, but there would have been significantly more warming um, without the Montreal Protocol. So we've we've worked to, to solve two potential crises. So it, it is making a big difference. Shanklin is not sure how much the Montreal Protocol contributed to climate action. 
Well, we have the numbers. The agreement has already benefited efforts to mitigate climate change, helping avoid global warming by an estimated 0.5 degrees Celsius. The last amendment to the protocol, signed in 2016, limited the use of hydrofluorocarbons, which were introduced as non-ozone-depleting alternatives, but were discovered to be contributing to climate change. This amendment will avoid another 0.3 to 0.5 degrees Celsius of warming by 2100. Curbing climate change could be seen as just one beneficial side effect of the Montreal Protocol. Another could be that it struck a big blow to the keyhole rule that steered the way companies did business for the better part of the century. If you need a reminder, Robert Kehoe was a chemist who worked in the leaded gasoline industry. He devised the rule by which many 20th century companies conducted their business. The Kehoe rule is that if there's no proven risk from a product, the product is safe. The Montreal Protocol finally exposed the flaw in Kehoe's logic and set the stage for a new approach, the precautionary principle. The precautionary principle puts the burden of proof back on companies. The company needs to prove that its product is safe instead of the other way around. The absence of evidence confirming risk doesn't mean there's no risk. The concept originated in Germany in the 70s. The term Vorsorgeprinzip was used to describe the German response to forest degradation and sea pollution. German lawmakers banned certain substances that were suspected of causing environmental damage, even though the evidence at that time was inconclusive. The concept of the precautionary principle was first set out in a European Commission communication adopted in February 2000, which defined the concept and determined how it would be applied. It's now one of the fundamental principles of European Union governing policies on the environment, health and food safety. The ozone crisis made us look at the environment from a different perspective. It made us work together. And it actually worked. It also curbed climate change. The UN has called the Montreal Protocol the single largest contribution the world has made towards keeping the global temperature rise well below 2 degrees Celsius. A target agreed at the Paris Climate Conference. So why didn't we solve the climate crisis that way? Of course, Climate change is a much bigger problem, and the technology that is causing it is not as easy to replace as CFCs were, but we have known about it for as long as we have known about the ozone loss, even longer. Listen to Carl Sagan, the famous American scientist and author, speaking in front of the U.S. Congress in 1985. Uh, as I understand my, uh, my function, it is uh, to uh, give some sense of what the greenhouse effect is, to uh, try to say something about uh, greenhouse effect on, uh, on other planets, uh, to uh, again underscore that this is, uh, is a real phenomenon, and then uh, perhaps I can take liberty to say a, a few remarks about uh, uh, what to do about it. The uh, power of uh, human beings to uh, affect and uh, control and change the environment is growing as our technology grows. And uh, at present time, we clearly have reached the stage where we are capable, <clears throat> both uh, intentionally and inadvertently, to uh, make significant changes in the global climate and in the global ecosystem 
and we've probably been doing uh, on a smaller scale things like that uh, for a very long period of time. Uh, for example, uh, slash and burn agriculture, uh, which has been uh, with us for tens of thousands of years probably. Uh, because the effects occupy more than a human generation, there is a uh, tendency to uh, say that they uh, are not our problem. Uh, of course, then they are nobody's problem. Uh, not on my tour of duty, not on my term of office. It's something for the next century. Let the next century worry about it. But the problem is that uh, there are effects, and the greenhouse effect is one of them, which have long time constants. If you don't worry about it now, it's too late later on. And so in this issue, as in so many other issues, uh, we are passing on extremely grave problems for our children uh, when the time to solve the problems, if they can be solved at all, is now. The world knew about climate change, even then. Much earlier, actually, scientists first argued that human emissions of greenhouse gases could change the climate in the 19th century. By the 1980s, it became common knowledge. So, why have we been so slow to act, especially compared to the ozone crisis? Susan Solomon is the atmospheric chemist who first explained the loss of ozone in Antarctica. She's now a professor in the Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Sciences Department at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. She thinks she knows why we've been so slow. I think it's pretty clear that we solve hot crises in general much better than we solve slow crises. I mean, you only have to look at Ebola or COVID or any number of, of, of other um, threats to, to society. You know, if it, I think the only thing you could compare to the Antarctic ozone hole as changing the whole nature of the discussion from a future problem to a now problem would be if a big piece of Greenland fell into the sea tomorrow. You know, then we would know that we were looking at meters of sea level rise that would happen very, you know, within, I don't know how long a big piece would take to melt, but let's say, you know, a couple of years max, maybe less. I don't it you you have to the, the thing that's 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 very different about climate change is the slowness of it. And I think that if you look at, at history, every uh, environmental problem that involves a slow evolution takes much longer to get solved. I mean, you can use the example of lead in paint and lead in, in gasoline and, uh, you know, lead even in food utensils. That dates back 2,000 years. I mean, you know, the Romans used lead in aqueducts and, and in plates to make plates and other food utensils. And so we knew that lead was was dangerous for a long time, but it took us a very, very long time to figure out how bad it was and to have the science to, um, to make it clear to people. Naomi Oreskes, Harvard professor of the history of science, lists two main reasons why we haven't dealt with climate change as quickly as with the ozone crisis. I think there are several reasons, but the two most important that I've written on, one is that it's just a much more complicated problem and the product, fossil fuels, are not so easily replaced. In the case of chlorinated fluorocarbons, they were an important product, they were a profitable product, they were a good product, they were used in refrigeration, air conditioning, and other important uses, but the whole economy of the world did not depend upon chlorinated fluorocarbons, 
for climate change, we have a very different situation. The entire economy of the globe is dependent upon fossil fuels. The companies that produce these companies are, for the most part, not at all diverse companies. They generally produce one thing and one thing only, and that's fossil fuels, oil and gas, or in the case of coal company, coal. Almost none of these companies are diversified. And these companies have not done the right thing. Instead of accepting the scientific evidence and working with their own people or working with policymakers or working with academic and government scientists to come up with alternatives, they have actively fought tooth and nail at almost every possible juncture. And even to this day, they have continued to deny the scientific evidence on a variety of different levels. Climate change is by far the most imminent threat to our society. It's the biggest crisis humanity has ever faced, and solving it will require a fundamental societal shift. We must rethink the way we live, eat, work, and travel. And even though fixing the ozone layer wasn't as difficult as fixing the climate may be, we can still learn from our past successes, as well as our mistakes. The first lesson is one we hopefully already learnt, but as the Romans used to say, repetition is the mother of learning. It is not up to the society to prove that a product is dangerous. It is up to those who produce the product to prove that it's safe. Otherwise, we'll just keep making the same mistakes all over again. If the ozone crisis taught us anything, that is to trust the science. Not just any science, thoughtful, carefully researched, tested, reviewed science. Science that we can trust is the one which other scientists try to disprove and fail to disprove, the one where consensus among the scientific community exists, as is the case for climate change. In her book, Why Trust Science?, historian of science Naomi Oreskes argues why, in fact, we should trust science. The first reason is because science has a proven track record, because we can show all the many ways in which scientists have helped us understand the natural world cure diseases, and invent useful technologies. The second reason, Oreskes says, is because science is a form of work. A lot of us have a kind of mystical view of scientists as, as performing a certain kind of black magic, which we really don't understand, and so that makes us susceptible to misleading claims about it. But if you think about ordinary expertise, we trust experts in all aspects of our lives every single day. Uh, right now, my shower's leaking after this podcast, I'm going to call a plumber. If my tooth hurt, I would go to a dentist. If I felt sick, I would go to a doctor. If my wiring was acting up, I would call an electrician. Um, if I needed home health care, I'd hire a nurse. And we do that all the time, and we don't even think about it, because of course you're going to call a plumber when you have a plumbing problem, because those are the people who have been trained and who have the expertise to solve the problem. Now, you might get references because you know that not all plumbers are good, but you will hire a plumber to fix your plumbing. You won't hire a dentist or a gardener. And conversely, you wouldn't hire a plumber to do your gardening. So that notion of expertise as having experience and expertise in a form of work is something that's familiar to all of us in daily life and essentially non-controversial. So I encourage my readers to think of science that way, that science is a form of work and to do that work, people develop expertise, just like the plumber maybe has an apprenticeship with a, with a more senior plumber. Scientists have apprenticeships where they work with more senior scientists. We call that graduate school. They get training, they get expertise, they get certification. We don't license scientists, but we do certify them, typically with a PhD in their field. And they're fairly specialized. People, unlike a plumber who might do all kinds of plumbing, 
or a plumber might actually have a specialty in, I don't know, industrial plumbing or something. Scientists typically have very narrow expertise. So we should trust and respect the expertise of those workers in the same way we trust or respect the expertise of a plumber or a gardener or a dentist. Now, the caveat on that is, so with the plumber, we might get references because if a plumber has a really bad reputation, we might say, oh, okay, well, I'm not going to use that plumber. But the same applies in science too. One of the things that we point out in Merchants of Doubt is that the climate change denier were people who, first of all, had no expertise in climate science. Merchants of Doubt is Oreskes' 2010 book in which she draws parallels between climate change and earlier debates over tobacco smoking, acid rain, and the hole in the ozone layer. So they were scientists, but they weren't climate science. And that should have been a red flag to journalists. Um, so they were presenting themselves as experts in an area that actually really didn't have expertise. So it's not enough just to recognize that a person's a scientist. You have to ask what kind of a scientist are they? And do they actually have expertise in this particular area? That's a question that journalists almost never ask and ordinary people probably wouldn't even really think to ask, but we need to. And then the other point is that if they have a track record of being wrong, then it's like the plumber who has a bad track record. So we show in Merchants of Doubt that these climate change deniers had also denied the scientific evidence of the ozone hole, of the reality of acid precipitation, and of the harms of tobacco. And that should have been a giant red flag. That should have been a whole field of waving red flags, that these were people who had a track record of um, questioning or denying science that turned out to be correct and true. And so that should have been a signal that they were, the, in effect, they were bad plumbers. There's another important element to this discussion, scientific consensus. If you look at the history of science, you see how many important discoveries, developments, inventions uh, we can attribute to scientific knowledge. And we can show all the many ways and places in which scientists have helped us understand the natural world in ways that helps us cure disease, invent useful technologies, or just have a deeper understanding and appreciation of the world that we live in. So that's the short answer to the question, but there is a legitimate longer answer that involves the fact that um, scientists do make mistakes. Scientists are human, science is a human enterprise, and like any human enterprise, it's fallible. And we can certainly identify examples in the history of science where scientists did get it wrong. And of course, science deniers exploit that. They'll take that out of context and see, oh, but look at this, scientists used to say X and now they say Y. But here, so here's the longer argument I make in the book, which is to say, well, if you actually look at some of those cases where scientists um, supported a claim that we would now say was untrue or even um, damaging, what we find in almost all those cases that actually there wasn't a scientific consensus that there was actually considerable difference of opinion in the scientific community. And so this is one of the reasons why consensus is so important as a category and why I spent time trying to understand the scientific consensus on climate change and what it includes and what it doesn't include. When scientists actually have a consensus, we find there are actually aren't that many cases in the history of science where that's been overturned. There are a few, but that's not that many. When we see cases where we would say in hindsight that scientists were wrong, when we look in detail, we see that actually there wasn't a consensus, that people were arguing, people were disagreeing, people had not actually resolved the problem yet. And so the people who are saying, oh, scientists were wrong, are actually taking the argument out of context. 
they're pointing to the part of the argument where scientists were wrong and ignoring the parts of the argument where other scientists were saying, saying, well, hold on a minute, I don't think that's right. So if we, so this is why it's very important for us to understand scientific consensus. It's very important for us to know what the state of the scientific knowledge is and then to base our decision making on consensus science. And when it comes to climate change, scientific consensus most certainly exists. Today, after a century of research, the majority of the scientific community accepts global warming as fact. 99% of relevant scientists agree that climate change is real. This is how Mario Molina summarized climate change science during a congressional hearing in 2010. Uh, as we heard in various media reports, as well as in these halls, some groups have stated in recent months that the basic conclusion of climate change science is not valid. This conclusion is that the climate is changing as a consequence of human activities with potentially very serious consequences for society. However, several groups of scientists have recently pointed out that the scientific consensus remains unchanged and has not been affected by these allegations. The conclusion is that it is now well established that the accumulation of greenhouse gases resulting from human activities is causing the average surface temperature of the planet to rise at the rate outside of natural variability with potentially uh, damaging consequences for society. I fully agree with this conclusion. There appears to be a gross misunderstanding of the nature of climate change science among those that have attempted to discredit it. They convey the idea that the science in question behaves like a house of cards. If you remove just one card, the whole structure falls apart. However, this is certainly not the way the science of complex systems works. A much better analogy is a jigsaw puzzle. Many pieces are missing, some might even be in the wrong place, but there is little doubt that the overall image is clear, namely that climate change is a serious threat that needs to be urgently addressed. And as Sherwood Rowland memorably said in his 1984 interview with The New Yorker, what's the use of having developed a science well enough to make predictions if in the end all we're willing to do is stand around and wait for them to come true? Jonathan Shanklin, one of the scientists who discovered the ozone hole and observed its recovery, agrees. Again, it, it's really a nice demonstration of science that you can predict how something should recover and then watch that recovery um, happen with in situ sampling of the atmosphere. Uh, so it, it's really quite remarkable how neatly the points lined up on the expected graph. We don't need just good science. We need to debunk the bad science, myths that persist despite being challenged by science. And that's even more important today in what is often called the disinformation age. But this is nothing new. Even before the internet, different myths and fake science spread. Jamie Kitman, a veteran journalist who wrote extensively about lead and gasoline, had an interesting experience a few years back. There are a lot of people who are still mad that they took the lead out of gasoline, even though they're safer for it. Um, and, you know, it's, it's kind of this whole anti-science Band that you know some portion of this country has um, people like I actually went to a NASCAR race and they didn't take uh, lead out of gasoline in NASCAR till like uh, God thirty years after they took it out of regular um, gasoline and of course they still use it in propeller planes and they make the same 
uh, false arguments for it that they did for automobiles. Um, uh, but they, people, I was speaking to young women one, uh, in one interview, and uh, they were really mad that there was no lead in gasoline anymore. They had never seen it in their life, except at NASCAR races. And they were like, man, they take the fun out of everything. Um, like, wow, uh, just wow. The same happened with the ozone. Even years after the Montreal Protocol, there were groups that were still peddling extreme theories about the ozone scare, as they called it. Listen to an excerpt from a press event organized to mark the publication of The Holes in the Ozone Scare, a book published by one of these groups in 1992. Uh, what I would like to say from the outset is that every single tenet of this theory is a, is a fraud. Well, actually, you can't say about the theory. A theory is a theory, but you've got a scare. We're supposedly the, the, we're going to get fried by ultraviolet radiation unless we ban chlorofluorocarbons. And I would like to start by picking up on what March mentioned before is the question to, to start with from a reality standpoint. What will the consequences of banning CFCs on the world, on the world population? And experts in the refrigeration industry have estimated that between 20 and 30 million people are going to die every single year, starting around the year 2000. And it'll increase as the decade goes along, but that, that's about the year 2000, uh, because of the ban on CFCs. And you don't need to go very... This, of course, didn't happen. But this type of disinformation could be heard for years, before and after the Montreal Protocol. At one point, the head of a CFC company questioned Roland and Molina's motives, accusing them of being Soviet agents. There is another parallel we can draw between the ozone and the climate crises. As was the case with the ozone issue, we will also need a lot of money to cover the costs of the green transition. Much more, actually. But that's not the number we should focus on. Susan Solomon. I mean, people have to be willing to invest in the change. That's what it boils down to. There is a, there's too much fear of what the upfront costs are going to be, even though there'll be tremendous benefits downstream. And we also need to be very clear about how much it's going to cost if we don't do it. You know, the damage to, well, the human suffering, the loss of property, the damage to ecosystems. I mean, it will become massive the, the longer we wait. So um, people are getting that message now. And I think, um, you know, because in most parts of the world, for example, solar is now cheaper than any kind of fossil fuel um, energy, if you, you know, are willing to bear the upfront cost. The real problem is a lot of people aren't willing to bear that cost. And they don't perceive how, how practical it is. I think the practicality of it needs to be made clear to people. Naomi Oreskes agrees about the importance of investment. So I think the more important point is not to worry about how to persuade people who are dug in in their resistance, but to try to figure out how to mobilize you know, the much larger majority of people who do understand that this issue is real, but maybe just don't know what they should do about it. Right, so that's where the business community comes in, I think, in a big way. Yeah, I think that almost everyone in the business community understands that climate change is real, but maybe they're not sure what would be an effective policy response, or they're busy trying to run their company, and that's enough of a job that they don't necessarily feel that they have the time to sit down and figure out 
you know, what would a genuine sustainable company look like? But that's again where I think we could help, right? Because there are companies that are making meaningful progress on these issues. There are people who have been thinking this through and to the extent that we can highlight those conversations, in other words, let's not waste time arguing about denial. That's kind of in the past, in my opinion. But let's foreground the conversation about how the business community and particularly the investment community can play a positive role by, in my opinion, not investing in further fossil fuel development, not investing in further fossil fuel infrastructure like export gas export terminals, but reinvesting in renewable energy, in storage, um, you know, in efficiency. I mean, efficiency is the low-hanging fruit that keeps getting missed in this conversation. We can help fix this problem by standing up and being counted, by changing the way we think about investment, by figuring out how we can do the investments that will help um, fix this problem. So I really do think the investment community, you know, really could be heroes. There's an opportunity here. There's a really historic opportunity. And the last lesson we can learn from the way we dealt with the ozone crisis is that we can solve an environmental crisis. We were faced with the biggest disaster humanity ever experienced, and we did something about it. That's probably the most important lesson. It's easy to feel down about the climate. We can and should do more, but it's good to keep in mind that we can solve the climate crisis. Uh, when you look at the past history, you find that even the toughest ones uh, have, actually can be solved and have been solved. And this one, I'm confident, will be too. You know, it doesn't mean the world's going to go back to the kind of climate we hit in the year 1800, but um, avoiding, um, you know, environmental breakdown. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm quite optimistic we can do that, and I that would be that would be quite an achievement for humanity. I think there are three P's that are fundamental to solving an environmental problem. One, it has to be personal to people, and in the case of the ozone hole. It was highly, highly personal. People understand the idea that ultraviolet light is not good for you. If you've ever been sunburned, you know it's not good for you. You know it can cause skin cancer. So you didn't have to convince people that this was a, a, a bad thing. It has to be personal to people. It has to be perceptible to people. They have to ideally be able to see it with their own eyes or smell it, you know, and you could do that with smog. You couldn't do that with ozone, but you know you had to at least be able to understand it. And the science was easy to understand when you saw those satellite images of you know holes in the Antarctic ozone layer. I mean, it was it was very graphic. It was not you didn't have to be a statistician to look at the graphs of the ozone changing and see that something was really weird. Um, so personal, perceptible, and finally we have to believe that there are practical solutions. Um, I think with climate change. People viewed it as not as personal because it wasn't a hot topic. Um, also, because the type of phenomena that are involved are things that have happened in the past, they're just worse. So, you know, for example, and then they're more frequent. So heat waves, you know, we can show now that heat waves are worse than they've ever, than they've ever been and that they're happening much more often, that they're much more frequent and intense. But, you know, it's not like a heat wave never happened before. So it's a it's familiar. It's not an alien planet. It's just a so that's why some people want to call it climate weirding or or something like that, which which is, is not unreasonable. But it, it's it's just a communication issue. People, many people have 
have not viewed it as much of a personal problem, but they do now because, you know, what I always said was just wait because it's going to emerge from the variability. People will begin to realize their summers are hotter, their heat waves are worse, their rainfall is more intense. As that happens, more and more people will recognize the seriousness. And that that is clearly happening, even in the United States, even in the red states. You know, the, the polls all clearly show it. So personal, perceptible. Well, again, you know, it's not quite as perceptible, you know, but it, but it's 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 getting pretty perceptible. The big stumbling block now is do people and I'm talking about the public. Have, do the public understand that we have practical solutions? I think the experts know that by now we do have practical solutions. They they developed slowly. They developed because wise policy forced the industry to begin to develop alternatives. I have to credit Europe a lot in the Kyoto Protocol. I think that the, the Europeans led that and they uh, created a push for alternatives that that has obviously borne fruit. It's true. As climate science becomes more accepted by the public, it puts more pressure on politicians to act. According to the European Investment Bank's annual climate survey, 84% of EU citizens say that if we do not drastically reduce our consumption of energy and goods in the coming years, we are heading for a global catastrophe. The same goes for 88% of Chinese citizens. In the UK and the US, the percentage reaches 83 and 72, respectively. Hopefully, since you're listening, you agree that action is needed if we want to avoid the worst-case scenario. Even more importantly, that you think we can still do something about it, and that you want to help prevent it. As Sherwood Rowland was often quoted while he was warning people about the dangers of ozone loss, if not us, who? And if not now, when? Thank you for listening. This was a Climate Solutions production from the European Investment Bank. Subscribe to Climate Solutions. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and wherever you get your podcasts. The interview segments with Mario Molina are extracts from the oral history interview with Mario J. Molina conducted in May 2013 by David J. Caruso and Jody A. Roberts of the Chemical Heritage Foundation's Center for Oral History. Clips from the interview with Sherwood Rowland are part of the American Meteorological Society Oral History Project collection and used with permission from the American Meteorological Society. The American Meteorological Society Oral History Project was created as a joint program between the American Meteorological Society and the University Corporation for Atmospheric Research. It aims to capture the history of the atmospheric sciences as told by the researchers, scientists, administrators, and others working in the field. Paul Brodeur's articles mentioned in this episode were both published in The New Yorker. The first story, entitled Inert, was published in 1975, while the second story, In the Face of Doubt, was featured in the June 1986 issue of the magazine. Firing Line copyright is held by Stanford University. We have received written permission of the Hoover Institution Library and Archives on behalf of Stanford University to use the clip featured in the episode. Audio of the Holes in the Ozone Scare press conference and Carl Sagan testifying before Congress in 1985 are property of C-SPAN, whose permission was attained to feature them in the episode.